Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Today we're going to be discussing the very end of the book of Matthew, um, the last eight chapters. And if all I did is read those chapters, it would take an hour. So we're going to have to, you know, pick and choose where we're going to land. And I titled this using Tim Miller's uh, a bumper sticker. My bumper sticker would be the rejected but victorious king. Jesus was not the king the people expected, but he was and is the king that the world needed. So just a little bit of a roadmap for what we're going to cover today. I'm going to do a brief overview of the chapters. Um, Then we're going to take a deeper look into two passages. And then I'd like to spend uh, the last one third of our time speaking about the Great Commission. So just uh, the the unique thing about these, these chapters is basically they cover the last week of Jesus's earthly life before his resurrection. And if you think about that, that's 25% of the book of Matthew is devoted to one week. And so we're going to go day by day and um, just go over some some of the highlights of each day. So we're going to start with Sunday. And could I have a volunteer uh, read Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11? You know, Louis, is Louis out there? Maybe Louis could read this. Thank you. Oh. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. Good. Uh, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from the Nazareth of Galilee. Thank you, Louis. And I just remembered I forgot to open us in prayer. So let's uh, bow and pray before we dive into God's word. Lord, um, thank you, God, for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for giving us your word. And I'm reminded in this week's reading that you said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So God, as we look at your word, I pray 
that um, we would be encouraged, we'd be challenged, and that your Holy Spirit would, would bring to mind um, what you want to say to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we see on Sunday, um, this is the final week of Jesus's life, and Jesus knew that the religious leaders were going to arrest him, condemn him, and deliver him over to the Romans for crucifixion. Yet, he had the courage to not only enter Jerusalem, but to enter in a very public way. Jesus could not have chosen a more dramatic moment. It was because the city was surging with people. So some of my observations, uh, quick observations about this day is that Jesus fulfills the prophecy by coming to Jerusalem on a colt. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Another quick observation is, if you think about it, this event is both ridiculous and glorious. And it's ridic it would have been ridiculous um, in the eyes of the Romans, you know, or maybe we could say in the, in, in the world's eyes. Um, imagine somebody coming to the Roman authorities after G as Jesus was coming in and say, hey, you know, a new king has come to town. What would that guy, what would that Roman authority say? He would, he would probably say something like this. Well, how many soldiers are with him? And the answer would be none. <laughs> well, how many weapons did you see? None. Okay, well, how many, how many horses is he riding on? Oh, he's not riding on a horse. He's on, he's on a baby donkey. <laughs> so um, I think the Romans would have thought that, you know, this is kind of ridiculous. But as believers, both now and then, it was glorious because Jesus came to Jerusalem in humility, yet with appropriate dignity. Instead of coming on a horse like a conquering general, which one day he will when he returns, he came on a colt. And he came to Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace. So that's Sunday. Then we move to Monday. Could I have a volunteer read um, chapter 21, verses 12 to 22, please? Greg, I got it. Excellent. Thank you. 12 to 22? Yep. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. 
Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to, the, to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Thank you. So this isn't the first time that Jesus goes in to clean the, temp, to, to clean the temple courts. Um, there, it was also recorded in John chapter 2 that Jesus did that. And this was, that was at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Yet the purpose of both of these events are the same, to drive out the merchants who in cooperation with the priests cheated visitors to Jerusalem by forcing them to purchase approved sacrificial animals and currencies at extremely high prices, sometimes 20 times what they would normally sell for. So here we see Jesus's righteous anger towards corruption and injustice. Jesus says, my house should be called a house of prayer, but the merchants operated in the outer courts of the temple. This was the only area where Gentiles could come and pray. Therefore, this place of prayer was made into a marketplace and a dishonest one at that. So I also noticed that, um, well, uh, that this was also an we, we also see the incredible compassion and mercy Jesus had towards the needy. The bold action of Jesus when he drove out the merchants and money changers from the temple courts didn't discourage people from coming to him. After driving out the money changers and merchants, he got back to doing business as being the Messiah, a significant part of which was showing the power of God in the context of compassion and mercy. And then we see this acted out parable of the fig tree. In this real life parable, Jesus is warning of the coming judgment upon the unfruitful Israel. He, it showed that God's disapproval of people who are just all leaves, but no fruit. So that's Monday. Now we move to Tuesday on, on Tuesday we see that Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders and speaks privately with his disciples. Um, Tuesday, this is, a, this is a very large portion of scripture, so obviously we're not going to read, read through this. I'm just going to summarize it. Um, the religious leaders try to trap Jesus and shame him into public debate, and they fail, so they end up determining to have him killed. In response, Jesus delivers his final block of teaching um, he first offers this passionate critique of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, and then he weeps over Jerusalem in its rejection of God and his kingdom. Then we see that Jesus withdraws privately with his disciples and starts telling them what's going to happen to him, that he's going to be executed by these leaders, and they're going to create their own demise because instead of accepting Jesus's way of a peaceful kingdom, they're going to rebel against Rome. And so Jerusalem and its temple are going to be destroyed. Jesus says, this is not the end of the story though. 
he's going to be vindicated by his death and his resurrection. And one day he'll return to set up his kingdom over all the nations. But in the meantime, the disciples need to stay alert and stay committed to announcing Jesus and his kingdom by spreading the good news. Now we look at Wednesday. On Wednesday, the religious leaders plot to kill Jesus while Jesus' disciples make preparation for the Passover, their Passover meal together. The long controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders had finally come to this. They didn't want to put Jesus to death during Passover, but that's exactly how it happened. This is just another indication that Jesus was in control of all these events, as they in fact would kill him on the very day they didn't want to do so. Then we jump to Thursday. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded, Joe, I'm reminded about Wednesday. This is his one day of rest. He stays in Bethany. He goes out Tuesday night, stays there. He's there all day. He's with his friends. It's the, it's the last night that he rests, Wednesday night. When he gets up Thursday and he goes into the city, uh, he never returns to Bethany, and he goes to the cross on Friday. This is his one day of strength and rest and being alone uh, with his disciples and with the people he loves in Bethany. That's a, thank you for sharing that. That's excellent. So now Thursday, we see both the Passover meal with his disciples and then his time in Gethsemane. So the disciples celebrate the Passover together. Um, as you know, Passover retells the story of Israel's rescue from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. Jesus takes the bread and wine from this meal as new symbols showing that his coming death would be a sacrifice that would redeem his people from the slavery of sin, evil, and death. And later that night, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to Gethsemane to pray. Jesus, while sweating drops of blood, asks God if there's any other way to make salvation possible, but then yields to the Father, saying, Not my will, but yours be done. Then Friday... Friday, Jesus is arrested and put on trial before the Sanhedrin. And they reject his claim to be the Messiah and charge him with blasphemy against God. Then Jesus is brought before the Roman governor Pilate, who thinks he's innocent, but gives in to the pressure of the crowds and the Jewish leaders and sentences him to death by crucifixion. Jesus is then led by the Roman soldiers and crucified. And you notice here in this section that the Old Testament references, there, there's a lot more Old Testament references. And Jesus is, uh, Matthew's trying to show us that Jesus' death is not a tragedy or a failure, but rather a, su a surprising fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Jesus came as a servant Messiah spoken of by Isaiah, he was rejected by his own people, but instead of judging them, he is judged on their behalf, bearing the consequences of their sins. The crucifixion scene comes to a close when Jesus's body is placed in a tomb. And then we jump to Sunday, and we all know what happened on Sunday. Uh, the glorious resurrection and Christ's great commission. So on Sunday, just some observations I make 
is we see that some of the faithful women are the first ones to see, see the risen Christ. And they would also be the first messengers of the risen Christ. The disciples discover that Jesus's tomb is empty. And then all of a sudden people start seeing Jesus alive from the dead. And the book concludes with the risen Jesus giving his final teaching called the Great Commission. And then I also, one of my observations, and this one's kind of silly because talking the news about conspiracy theories, I wonder if the very first conspiracy theory in all of history is the one about Jesus's whereabouts that the, that the priests made up. Okay, any comments or questions on this first section? Anybody wanna share something? If you do, unmute yourself. Greg, Greg, this is Pat Keating. Yes. It, following up on the cleansing of the temple, uh, you mentioned that it that this was apparently the second one because it occurs in, in early in John's gospel. But if you compare Matthew and Mark, Mark has it on the second day, Tuesday of Holy Week, whereas Matthew has it on the first day. So it could be that there are three cleansings, and three, of course, is a perfect number. And I think it points to the importance of cleansing, because that was before the high priest could even go into the temple, he had to go through ritualistic cleansing and cleaning himself to come before God. We know, of course, that the temple is going to be destroyed, uh, within the generation of the people uh, in, in Jesus's audience. But the cleansing is symbolic of how Jesus is also our temple. There is no need for the sacrifices under the Old Testament because we have a new temple. Amen. Good thoughts, good thoughts. Thanks, Pat. Pat. Anybody else? Hey, Greg, it's Doug Hartline. Um, the other thing that, that I love about the beginning of this um, these sections is how bold Jesus is when he when he comes and he knows why why he's coming to Jerusalem and the triumphal entry. Um, then you have the, the the cleansing of the temple and then literally calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers. I um, mean, he is poking them in the chest. I love the boldness that he walks into the sacrifice with that. Um, that you know he's taking no prisoners. He he makes sure that everybody knows why he's there. And I just I just love that boldness, and it speaks to me that you know when uh, when we know what the right thing is, that we should be more bold as well. Thank you, Doug. Greg, I just wanted to mention it was years ago. I was on an exercise bike, and I heard this tremendous Tim Keller message about Jesus cleansing the temple, and what it was talking about. And I think it's something we, we should pay attention to. Jesus was very, very angry. Okay, he's not a weak or a docile God. And But one thing that we know with certainty about Jesus, Jesus did not and cannot sin. So this is a tremendous display of unbridled righteous anger. That's a great point. And, you know, there's a lot of anger out there, today, you know, recently. And the one thing I wonder is I don't know that we can fully express righteous anger the way Jesus did. I think our anger is always tainted with some sort of sinful motive. Um, 
but Jesus was the one person who could clean, cleanse the temple and do it for the right reasons. And, uh, um, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to, wanted to share that. Um, well, let's, let's move on and we're going to have another. Hey, oh yeah. Okay. Go um, for it. I, I just like to, since we're on the temple, just emphasize that verse a little bit more. So verse 13 in chapter 21, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So the two points are, number one, God's temple uh, is to be a house of prayer. I think we can take that to heart today in terms of what we're supposed to be all about in, in the, the church setting. Um, it is to be a house of prayer. And then the second thing is when Jesus says you've made it a den of robbers, a den of robbers is a place that is sanctuary for those who are present. So he's accusing the chief priests of making the temple not simply into a place where money is exchanged and robbery is occurring, but he's, they've made it into a safe place for people to be robbed and cheated. So it's a complete reversal of the purpose of the temple, a house of prayer that is to be a safety for those who come to pray and to seek God, as opposed to those who come to rob and cheat, which is what they've made it into, a safety, a place of safety for those who are the cheaters and the robbers. Thank you. Okay. All of us have seen this. You'd have to be hiding under a rock if you haven't seen this picture. Um, and I, I want to, um, us to look at this passage. Uh, I want to look at, we're going to look at two different passages. And the first passage I want us to look at is the sheep and the goats. And I want to make some, some observations. Um, Doug Hartline, would you read this passage? Um, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Hang on, Greg, I had to put my glasses on. <laughs> 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered together before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Oh, still going, sorry. They, will also, they, they also will answer, Lord, when did you see 
When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or a sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Thank you, Doug. Um, so this kind of came to me actually at five o'clock this morning, um, thinking about the current situation uh, that's happening in America. And I want to just make some observations um, that I think uh, this passage brings out. The first one is that when it comes to humanity, there is no us versus them. The only person that can say us versus them is God. And God, you know, separates sheep from goats. And ultimately, he is the only one. And uh, there's a lot of us versus them happening right now in, in America. And also that the gospel is the only solution to issues like racism. Um, and my third observation is that we cannot afford to be indifferent towards the needy people all around us. And here's my point. Take a look at this picture. What does this picture communicate? There's actually two strong interpretations of this picture. Let's say the guy on the right is a counselor or a psychiatrist. So what would that, what does this picture communicate? It, on the one hand, it could communicate this, that even that a psychiatrist needs to spend time with Jesus. He needs to hear the wisdom of Jesus. So um, he needs to get his wisdom from Jesus. But there's another interpretation of this that comes to mind, is that Jesus, who's sitting across from him, is actually the person he's counseling. That he is actually, he sees every other human being as if he was sees Christ, which is what I think this passage, the sheep and the goats, he's because you know it says, "What you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me." So if we go back to this picture, both of these men, if you what would happen if we viewed them through the eyes of Christ and we saw them as, as Christ? I mean, uh, that, that, this, this is, uh, um, all came to me, like I said, at five o'clock this morning and it really convicted me and it reminded me, I just want to close this, this thought with what he says. The King will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And and I tell you, whatever you did not do to the least of these, you did not do for me. The answer to um, the, the, the issues like racism, I think, is the gospel. Is the gospel. And it's probably the only solution that's going to, that's going to heal America. Now, I, 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 um, does anybody have any comments or thoughts related to this? Uh, Craig? Yes. I would add, you know, having worked in Africa for a long time and having been called a racist, uh, it occurs to me that we will never, we will not get, get rid of racism by legislation 
new, law, new laws, etc. We cannot talk it away. But only as we live as if we are not racist. That means a change of heart. That is the only way that racism will be effaced. Uh, but it's a commitment to all of us to, you know, we, we, we grew up, many of us, with a baggage of racism because of the context in which we grew up. Uh, but now that we're adults and we call ourselves Christians, we know better. And hence, we need to live as if we are not racist. That, to me, is the solution. Thank you. Okay, well, there'll be a time for, if, you have, if you're still processing, I'll, I'll take some more comments and questions in a minute. The second passage I want us to look at briefly is this pa passage in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. Um, Tim Miller, are you, could you read this for us? While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day, no one dared ask him any more questions. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. So the thing about this is um, the context of the situation is the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus. So they came to him with all these questions. Should we pay taxes? What about, it? What about marriage and the resurrection? Um, what's the greatest commandment? And then finally, Jesus almost out of frustration, turns uh, to them and says, well, let me ask you a question. Um, whose son is the Christ? And of course, the religious leaders knew the answer, that he was the son of David. And then Jesus says, let me ask you another question. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? What is Jesus' point? And what is the point for us today? I think the point is that the ultimate question in life is who is Jesus? Is he just the son of David or is he also the son of God? Okay, any, um, before we move on to the Great Commission, which is my real passion, anybody have any comments or questions on either of those two passages? I know Jim, Jim Love, you might wanna say something here. Uh -huh. We talked earlier this week about this. Well, you know, uh, uh, it seems like you really have to take the, you have to back up a few verses here uh, and see what the Pharisees' question was. Uh, and uh, their question was, um, uh, what is the greatest commandment? Um, uh, one, of, one of them, and um, because he had just dealt with the Sadducees and now he's dealing with the Pharisees. And they ask him, and of course, we've been talking about this as the church. This is the love matters most passage. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love. 
uh, uh, that's the great and foremost commandment. But I, I find it interesting, and and I think it's it's use it's always important. To, when Jesus asks a question, his question is a lot more important. His question gets to the real issue. So the Pharisees are asking, what should we do? And Jesus says, no, the real issue is not what you're supposed to do. The real issue is, who am I? Uh, and, and we can really get wrapped up in that, not just in salvation. What do I have to do to be saved? But even in the way we live, uh, what am I supposed to be doing when the big issue for both questions is Jesus' question? Uh, who am I? And if we, if we think about the implications of that, um, even in the way we live, it just drowns everything else out. Um, was Jesus really who he said he was? My goodness, and now he's saying he lives inside of me. Uh, that's transformative. That's revolutionary. And so I, I think some, if you read this passage and you only focus on what Jesus, Jesus answered, which I think was concessionary to the Pharisees, that wasn't the big deal. That was their question. He says, you want to know the big question here? It's who am I? <laughs> That's the big question. So I don't know. I'll, I'll stop preaching. <laughs> That's great. Greg, Anybody else have any other comments? Yeah, Greg, questions? can I make a comment about that? Um, for I mean, Jesus obviously stumped them with that question. You know, how can he be David's son and also be David's Lord? But we know the answer to that. Uh, and that Jesus was the most unique uh, you know, person in the history of the world, and that he was 100% God and 100% man. And this was expressed in the early church, what theologians call the hypostatic union. And so the, the answer is, yes, in his human nature, he was David's son. But in his divine nature, he was the eternally preexistent uh, son of God, and so he could also be David's Lord. So we understand it, in the sense that we know Jesus had both natures, but to the Jews of Jesus' day, that was a, a head-scratcher. And so they, they dared not ask him any more questions, as the text said. But we know the answer. Greg? You're, yes. Greg, it's Joe. When, uh, when you ask the question, who is Jesus? You know, twice now we've read in Matthew, once when Jesus was being baptized in the Jordan, and secondly, in the Mount of Transfiguration, where God said, this is my son whom I love. And uh, listen to him. So God declares Jesus as his son. Amen. Anybody else, any comments or questions on either of those passages? Okay. Well, the very end of the book of Matthew closes with these um, verses that we call the Great Commission. Um, and it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Some quick observations about this passage. The main verb is to make disciples. It's not go. Now that's good news because um, if, the, if the main verb was go, then we all probably should become foreign missionaries. But the main verb is 
to make disciples. So the, the actual Greek word for the word go should be translated as you're going. So as you're living your life, make disciples. That means you can make disciples anywhere. Um, anybody can make disciples wherever they are. Um, you don't have to go to a foreign mission field to make disciples. Um, all nations, obviously the gospel is for everyone. And Jesus tried to make that clear throughout the book of Matthew, that he came to seek and to save the lost. Obedience to God's word is emphasized. Um, and then Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. Now, when it, what does it mean when we talk about making disciples? What does that look like? Um, when he says, go and make disciples, notice that Jesus didn't say, go and build churches or go and make converts. Um, God makes it clear that he wants disciples who will make disciples who make more disciples. So the founder of the Navigators was this guy named Dawson Trotman, who was a friend of Billy Graham's. And Dawson Trotman had a, a very traumatic testimony. He was a messed up young man, very messed up. And he came to Christ because he went to a, he went to a Sunday school class with, with a friend, kind of on a bet. And in that Sunday school class, the teacher um, said, hey, if you memorize these verses, you know, you'll get rewarded. You'll get, you'll get a, you know, some sort of um, gift. And so he, he was a competitive guy, so he decided to memorize these verses. Well, the verses he memorized were the gospel. And, and that's kind of what brought him to Christ. But, um, and he was a passionate evangelist, much like Billy Graham. He made a commitment to minister, to share the gospel with one person every day of his life. And so there's a story that says that when one night at 11 o'clock, he was laying in bed and he realized he hadn't shared the gospel with anybody that day. So he climbed out of bed, got in his car and started driving around his town. And he ended up finding this drunk guy on the side of the road. And he, and he said, hey, do you want to ride? And the guy's like, sure. The guy gets in the car and Dawson Trotman just, he's a very blunt, he was a very blunt man too. He, he just said, hey, listen, um, I made a commitment that I was going to tell people what Jesus has done for me, that I was going to share the gospel with one person every day. And you're the guy, you're the guy for me tonight. So can I tell you how Jesus changed my life? So then he went on and shared the gospel and led that guy to Christ which was amazing. And he has, he was one of these guys that was kind of anointed and led tons of people to Christ. But how he fell into disciple making was he would bump into these guys that he'd led to faith, you know, six months, a year later, and he would find out that they were not changed, that they hadn't changed at all. Their lives, they'd fallen back in their sinful ways. And so he realized there was something missing, that it wasn't about making converts. Um, so that led him to um, what we call follow-up or disciple-making, that 
getting, bringing somebody to Christ is just the first step, but then there's a process to help that person grow and become a disciple and a disciple who makes disciples. So he learned the, the, the power of, of multiplication, spiritual multiplication, um, that it's, that it's multiplication, that God is interested in multiplication, not addition. And that disciples are made, not born. Um, you're not automatically a full-fledged disciple once you're born again. There's work involved to become a disciple. And we're gonna, I'm going to show you in a second. And these are our marching orders as followers of Christ. Actually, I got that directly from Tim Miller on a phone call I had with him this week. The Great Commission is our mar marching orders as followers of Christ. So we are called not only to be disciples, but to make disciples. Here are four qualities of a disciple. Love, obedience, fruitfulness, and sacrifice. And these qualities come right from the scriptures, from these verses. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is saying, this is how people will know you're my disciples. It's by your love. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, you know, I always like to say, you know, some of the hardest people to, some of the hardest people to love in the world are, are Christians. <laughs> you know, um, sometimes it's easier for me to love a non-Christian than it is to, live a, to love a Christian. Um, and then, and then who's, who's, whose house is that? I, I'm, I'm looking. Somebody's got to change. Somebody's got to change their nine volt battery in there. There we go. <laughs> the smoke detector. That always happens to me at three in the morning. <laughs> you know, my smoke detector goes out, and I got to figure out which one is the bad battery. Yeah. That's a fun process. Yeah. Anyway. And then Jesus said in John chapter 15, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So fruitfulness is a quality of, of a disciple. And then, he, and then in John chapter eight, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So obedience is key to being a disciple. And then finally, in one of the most challenging passages in scripture, Luke chapter 14, um, Jesus says, if you're not willing to give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciples. So there's an element of sacrifice that's necessary. The process of disciple making is to help somebody um, go from being a convert to a growing Christian, to becoming a disciple, and then a disciple maker and then ultimately a, ma a maker of disciple makers. Um, the navigators just, just within this last year said in the next 10 years, by 2000, um, in 2030, we want to raise up 1 million disciple makers across the world. Now, uh, or, or I should say we, we want to identify 1 million disciple makers across the world. We understand it's not going to be just our organization. It's going to, it's going to be lots of organizations and churches, but we want to try to identify 1 million disciple makers in the world. Um, one of the things, uh, 
when I first start discipling a person, I teach them this illustration called the wheel illustration, um, which uh, Pastor Joe often mentions. He kind of an adapted illustration, very similar. And the idea is that Christ needs to be in the center of your life. And then the spokes are prayer, the word, witnessing, and fellowship. And, and living the Christian life is like a wheel. When the wheel's spinning, you don't see the spokes. You see, you see the, the hub. You see Christ. And um, I also teach people what I call the seven basics of living the Christian life. Assurance of salvation, how to have a quiet time, um, prayer, scripture memory, Bible study, fellowship. Um, these are all things that I, I cover with them. All of a sudden, my, oh, there we go. And the Apostle Paul um, took the idea of disciple making, and he says in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. So you see Paul invested in Timothy, Timothy invested in reliable men, and those reliable men invest in others. That's the power of discipleship is spiritual multiplication. We're just about, um, you know, towards the end of our time, does anybody have any final comments or questions? Please unmute yourself. Uh, Greg, Pat Keating again. Yes. When you were uh, opening the discussion, talking about the triumphal procession and how it was so shocking to the authorities, here's Jesus, you know, no army, no troops with them, etc. It made me think of the comment that I think is attributed to Stalin at the end of World War II. How many divisions does the Pope have? And it's, it's fitting that secular leaders like the Romans in Jesus' day, they, can, they don't even understand the power of God the spiritual power that someone like Jesus can wield. It's, it's foreign to them. And, and it just, uh, and it's, that's like the history of the world. Thank you. Somebody else, what are some of your uh, comments or questions? Anybody? Greg, Doug Allen. Oh, Hey Doug. Um, uh, Question about discipleship, disciples. I've been sitting here looking up the Greek that goes along with that. And one of the things that says the, uh, a teacher is a mentor par excellent who seeks to stamp his image on disciples and thereby enable them to participate in his life. Do you think that some people are better mentors than others or is is i'll say a disciple would be a follower but i'm not sure what the word would be for a a person who is training someone to become a disciple do you think some people have a better skill at be making disciples than others 
Um, well, I do think that disciple making in some senses is a skill and it's a skill that every, everyone can learn. Um, it's, um, so I like to think that everybody, ultimately everybody could be a disciple maker. Um, you know, it's kind of like the, the apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, so the key is for the disciple, the disciple is wholeheartedly following Christ and ultimately pointing the person to Christ. Um, so I was very blessed in my life. Um, I became a believer through young life at the age of 16, but two years before I became a believer, my, my older brother became a believer and the young life leader kind of discipled my young, my older brother. And while he was discipling my older brother, he took, he started investing in my life. So he would come over to hang out with my brother, Doug, uh, to get him in the Bible. But then he would take time to talk to me and, and ask me about my life. And, and as soon as I became a believer, he started mentoring me. Now that gentleman is 80 years old. His name is KP. And he was on staff with Young Life for a short period of time, but then he became a Presbyterian pastor. And he used to drive an hour and a half one way to Kent State University just to visit me, just to um, disciple me. I mean, he invested in my life. And, um, and I, I think that, um, you know, and, and, and basically what I learned from him is how much he loved Jesus. And Jesus just oozed out of him and continues to ooze out of him. I just saw him like three days ago. Um, and, uh, you know, um, so anyway, that, that's my, that's my, my thought, Doug. I, I think it's a skill that anybody can, can learn. And, but I also think there's another book called the lost art of disciple making. And I think that in the church, unfortunately, disciple making has taken a back seat. We end up promoting programs and um, lots of other things take priority. And I think that's unfortunate. Greg, could I make a comment? Yeah. So as you share these things, Doug, one of the things I wanted to point out, I think what gives each one of us the capacity is the living, breathing, holding spirit. So I think it's the spirit that teaches all things. In fact, we don't have the capacity to learn anything, nor do we have the capacity to teach anything absent of the Holy Spirit. So, but the statement I wanted to make, I often ask people a question, what do you think Jesus Christ smells like? <laughs> and oftentimes I get a very bizarre response to that, but I think he smells much like a farm. I think Jesus smells like sheep. And I think one of the characteristics and traits of a disciple maker is proximity. If we're gonna affect people, we have to draw very, very close. And it's one of the things I love the most about Jesus, where we can see it, there's so many different stories, but the first one that's coming to mind is the Samaritan woman, where instead of going around a country, he went through that country to a place at a certain time and spoke to a person that by all worldly standards, he should not have been speaking to. So I just pray that each man in this group is a man that's willing to be proximate and go to the places that other people are not willing to go, because that's what our Jesus did. He was a seeker, and we have to be proximate. Lou? Hey, Greg, this is Bob. This is Doug. I don't Greg? think I have ever heard Christ referred to or smelling 
like a sheep. Sheep stink <laughs> if you've ever been around them. Uh, but to go along with what you were just saying, one of the things I think that are the the church has taught us is we sort of need to train people, and that's not what discipleship is. It's exactly what Greg was talking about with this gentleman who mentored him, is that Greg wants to take on the attributes of this gentleman, and I think that's what discipling is, that someone wants to take on our attributes and change their life into something else, not just getting trained in what the Bible says. Uh, on that point, Doug, Jesus takes on our attributes. He becomes the, the sacrifice for us. And so on Louis's point, if he smells like sheep and sheep stink, that's our stink. Amen. <laughs> okay, I'll concur with that. The one, it's the aroma of death. To the other, it's the aroma of life, right? There it is. Um, so three other things about discipleship. It's relational, it's individual, and it's intentional. Um, you know, again, I think that most of America's churches, we are set up like spiritual orphanages. We expect this one pastor to shepherd 300 people. And so what you have essentially is an orphanage and nobody's being discipled. Nobody's being mentored. You can't expect the pastor to mentor 300 people. Um, and so that's one of the values of ministries like the navigators is to kind of help come alongside the church and help uh, build a disciple making movement. Um, you know, planning churches does not always result in making disciples, but but a disciple-making movement will always result in planting churches. So I think Jesus, once again, gives us a great model of this. He had 12 disciples. He had three that he was close to, and there was one that he truly favored. So, and we have, we have a span. There's a limited span of control, but if we are intentional, I think there's a model that Christ has created for us and given us as an example. Greg, Yes. So, uh, you know, on your continuum, uh, convert, a growing Christian, disciple, disciple maker, maker of uh, disciple makers, we can all be involved in that continuum. And some of us will, will be witnessing, will lead people to Christ, will open, open their eyes, and others will come alongside them and help them grow. And hopefully we're doing that in this Bible study. And then others will... Uh, will be the disciple makers. And so there is a role for all of us in this process. And I, I, I'm just reminded that there's an individual in our ABF who um, is, uh, has contracted uh, Luke Eric's disease. And I asked him how I could pray for him. And he said, Joe, pray that the Lord will use me even in this illness, that I can be used to witness to others, whoever I come in contact with, that, that want to ask me about how I'm doing, what this illness is all about, how it's progressing, that the Lord can use me even here. So along this process, we'll, we can all be involved. Some may not be the disciple makers. You certainly are a disciple maker and a maker of uh, disciple makers. Uh, and that's wonderful. Well, it started for me when I was 
you know, I went to Young Life Camp when I was 16 years old and it changed my life. The next year I went back to camp and I thought it was going to be a downer. But what happened is I invited one of my non-Christian friends to come along to camp. And it ended up being a better summer because I got to see God change that guy's life. And I realized I played a part in that. He was on the trip because I invited him. I thought, man, I could do this. I can invite somebody. I honestly think that's why I'm in ministry today mm-hmm. is because I saw God use me at a young age just to impact one other person's life. Amen. And like you said, if you know Jesus, every single guy on this call can, can make an impact, can help one person, you know, uh, br- bring them along. And uh, you don't have to be a professional. Um, that's what I like about the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Make disciples wherever you're at. If you're an architect, you can make disciples. If you're a banker, you can make disciples. Um, you don't have to be a missionary. So um, anyway, um, this was a very much delight. Anybody have any final comments before we close in prayer? Yeah, Greg. Uh just going back to Matthew 22 and Jesus talked about the greatest commandment and to love the Lord, your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and as we're looking at not only winning disciples and making disciples, but also what's going on in our country right now, Dr. Martin Luther King had some interesting thoughts that I think that relate to this, that we're talking about this morning. And he said, a second basic fact that characterizes nonviolence is it does not seek to defeat or humiliate an opponent, but to win his friendship and to win his understanding. That's the best way to assure oneself that love is a key and that to have love for my enemy or my neighbor from whom you can expect no good in return, but only hostility and persecution, yet I'm still commanded to love. And he's, I believe he's talking about this verse. Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is from a man who was persecuted and, 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 of course, the father of the civil rights movement. But Martin Luther King says this, when I'm commanded to love, I'm commanded to restore community. That community and for us in the church is, again, part of what you're talking about this morning is fellowship in the church, but to have a relationship with who are willing to make a disciple for Christ in that love. And he said, I want to restore community. I want to resist injustice, but I want to meet the needs of my brothers. And I, and I thought that was so key to what Jesus was talking about here in the Gospel of Matthew, what you're relating to and making disciples. It's a relationship building as well as a knowledge and a salvation that we bring to that person and to those then that that person can now relate and bring relationship to other disciples. You know, um, that was very moving, actually. <laughs> and I, my heart has been broken this week as um, I'm a news junkie. Um, I happened to be up at, couldn't sleep, so I got up like four in the morning, and I was watching, and I watched that CNN black reporter get arrested, and when he was getting arrested, I just started bawling. I thought, what in the world is going on here? I mean, um, and I know he could have been a white person, and he still would have been arrested, but it's just, I mean, crazy what's happening in our country. My heart breaks. And I think that the answer is the gospel. Amen. It's the gospel. And it's just, if, if we were making disciples who were making disciples, if we started a disciple-making movement, um, a lot of these people would hear the gospel. And, um, you know, um, so, 
But, uh, and I don't have the answers. You know, I work with Chinese students. I hate the, uh, well, I shouldn't say, I do not like the Chinese government. I, I, I mean, I, I am very much against the Chinese government, but I work with Chinese students. I love the Chinese students. And some of them, just being in America, feel threatened um, because of some of the political things going on. So, I mean, it's uh, it, these are great opportunities for the gospel. Um, could I ask um, Joe, Joe Campanella, would you, would you mind closing us in prayer and praying for Dan? Yes. Okay, Greg. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and goodness and your mercy. Thank you, especially for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we just studied in these last chapters of Matthew, how his commitment to you above everything else uh, permits us to have salvation. And our hope is in the, uh, in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise you for that. Don't we so love to read your word and study the gospel to get to know you and your character better? Lord, we pray this morning uh, for Big Dan. I contacted him several times this week. He is struggling. He's not doing well. He has COVID-19, but you know that. And you know exactly what he needs right now. We pray first and foremost that the Holy Spirit will be with him and be his comforter. We pray that uh, he'll feel your arms enveloping him. We pray, Lord, that you'll just touch his body, heal him, raise him up. It's been six days now that he's been in the hospital. I don't know how long the cycle is, but I pray he doesn't get any worse. I pray that he begins to recover, that you'll take away uh, some of the pain in his joints, uh, that he won't have these uh, night sweats. We pray, Father, that you'll just touch his body, heal him, and may he be a testimony to those nurses and those that, those that are attending him of the saving and healing power of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for this men's Bible study. We thank you for Greg's teaching this morning. We see his heart for making disciples. We pray that you'll bless his ministry on the Kent State campus. Lord, that you'll honor him for his commitment to you. And we pray, Lord, that uh, as we go forward, if, even if it's in this virtual setting, that we can sense your presence, learn and grow in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember... On your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.